I'm Dr. Tagrid, your friendly child psychiatrist, and this is a space for young people, families, and professionals who want to understand neurodiversity and mental illness better. I'm here to help you make sense of the most complex of issues in the simplest of ways. Let me walk you through topics that are important to you, from autism to trauma and from depression to self-harm. In this podcast, I'll bring you expertise, explain the science, and equip you with practical tips and knowledge. Join me, Dr. Tagrid, your friendly child psychiatrist, for 30 minutes every Wednesday on all listening platforms. Hi, I'm Dr. Tagrid. Today we're talking about self-harm in children, young people and young adults. And today I've got with me Dr. Anais Alexander, who's a psychiatrist working with children and young people. And this is such a sensitive topic. And we're going to try to approach this as sensitively as as possible. But I think it's important, like the disclaimer at the beginning says, it's important to identify if you feel triggered about this topic and go in and get some support as soon as you feel so. But today we're talking at the beginning about what is self-harm? I think we can think of self-harm as essentially any act that causes harm to yourself. And it can take a number of different forms. So, for example, the most widely thought of act of self-harm would be the form of cutting. But there can also be other forms of self-harm. For example, um, scratching. Headlining. Um, it can be um, an act of overeating or undereating. It can be an act of overdosing on any, any substance, really. It can also be um, acts of reckless behavior. For example, um, taking substances, drinking alcohol. Um, and I think it's important to think of the intent behind the action when we think of self harm. Intent is quite key, isn't it? It is, absolutely. Because For example, with the overdose, you may overdose accidentally. You may overdose as a suicidal act, as a, as a means to commit suicide. Mm. Um, or you may overdose as a way to harm yourself and cause harm. So let's talk about the issue of harming oneself and causing harm to oneself. We, we talk a lot to young people about this, how at least in my practice, and I'm sure you've had the same experience. We talk about how this happened. What were you thinking leading up to the incident? And most of the young people that I meet just go, I don't know. And it's very hard for them in the moment to access what they were thinking, what the intent was, why did they do this? And it takes a lot of work and support to come to a place where they can actually verbalize, well, I was trying to hurt myself, but I didn't want to die kind of thing. And, and it's very difficult. And I think that the idea of, of talking about self-harm on, on social media, talking about self-harm in the media generally is, is interesting because it lends a voice to young people, a way to, to articulate almost what they feel. But at the same time, there is often, and we're going to talk about this in a minute, aren't we, about the concern about how social media presents self-harm. But I think what I'm trying to get at is, is it easy for people to 
spot this like I'm I'm self-harming because no and I think it's important to remember as well it's very difficult even though we speak a lot more about mental health nowadays which is brilliant it's still very very difficult mm. for people to articulate how they're feeling how exactly they're feeling inside what they're struggling with, what their distress is. It can be very difficult for them to speak to people they're close with and certainly very difficult to speak to people they don't know, for example, us um, professionals coming in to see them. Yeah, and it's very concerning, I think, for a person in that position where they get either they're found out by a loved one or um, they've had, they've come to a point where they need to access help and then opening up about something that's so private and so for a lot of people associated with shame is very difficult, isn't it? I think it's important to understand that there is no shame. It's we are there to help you. Yeah. Um, we are there to help you hopefully feel better, be able to express your emotions, express your difficulties, um, be able to talk about things to people rather than keeping it so hidden because a lot of people do keep it hidden. It's, it's a very private act. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's important for people to know that there are people out there who can try and work with you to understand what you're going through. So let's think with people about why this is becoming so widespread. So we're talking about numbers of one in four young people have self-harmed at some point. And and I often think about, it's like a lot of things in mental health. Is this an increase in actual practice and being that the actual behavior? Or is it an increase in people presenting with it rather? What are your thoughts about why... This is increasing so much. Yeah, there has definitely been an increase. And I think there's both been an increase and I think been an increase in people presenting to us being more willing to come to mental health services for health. There's still a big stigma about mental health, but it is getting less. Mm. Um, You mentioned social media before, and I Mm. think we do need to touch upon that. One, that it's being more widely discussed. To people can sometimes watch something on social media about mm. someone self-harming mm. and they may feel uncomfortable in themselves and they may, some sometimes they may, may look at it and think, okay, yeah, that worked for someone, I'll try that and that might be how they get started. Mm. Um, it may... It may find people that they can discuss it more with and be more open with. Um, I'm sure there's lots of support groups out there. But I don't think we can mention social media and self-harm and also just mention how harmful it can be to some people. Yeah. It's very good for a lot of people and it has uses, but it can be very, very harmful as, as tragically we know. I think despite a lot of the um, filtering going on in social media, there's still a lot of content out there that's very triggering for people. But I think I'm wondering about the is self-harm novel. Is it a new thing? Because I keep thinking about different cultures that self-harm is a part of. There can be many, many different reasons why people may self-harm. One maybe a sense of release. For example, they feel a lot of pain, distress or pressure 
building up inside of them. So by, for example, cutting, they can feel that pressure release from them. Yeah. Um, one may be because they feel a lot of guilt, a lot of self-hatred perhaps, and they feel that they deserve to feel pain. They deserve to, punish, to be punished, so they self-punish themselves. Mm. Um, it can be a way of conveying their pain and distress to others if others were to know, but we know that is a very private matter often. So I think it's really important to think about the intent behind self-harm when we talk about self-harm. So the way I like to explain it to people sometimes is there are two things behind self-harming behaviours. There is the biological bit, which is very basic biological mechanism in the body to react to any active, um, to anything that hurts you, right? So your body immediately reacts by producing a few things that, a few chemicals that are supposed to reduce that pain. And one of them is something that is very similar to opioids, to the way that morphine works, right? So these chemicals trigger a reward mechanism in your brain and they trigger immediate pain relief and they trigger a lot of release in the body, don't they? So that's the biological bit. And we see that very obvious in people who have very severe learning disabilities, um, very severe autism, sometimes looking for that sensory relief almost. And then there is the bit that has to do with the thought process or cognitive bit. So the thought process behind it can be one of self-depreciation or self-hatred or self-blame or guilt or a sense of I deserve to be punished. But also there is one where there's a thought process that is about I feel like this is too much. I'm overwhelmed and I need something to stop. Something to, we call it grounding, don't we? And we're going to talk about grounding techniques in the next episode, but grounding or bringing oneself back to reality is one of the functions or one of the things that self-harm can do. And I think one of the myths that need busting is that not self-harm, not all self-harm is to do with wanting to die. That's quite an important distinction to make. For example, I mentioned earlier that overdose could be a method of self-harm. People who think of overdoses often think of overdoses as with suicidal intent. It may not be. It's about the intent. Of course, they may end up very, very poorly in the hospital and unfortunately something more severe may happen to them. But their intent may not have been to die. It may have been to cause harm to themselves. And self-harm, even though we're talking about it more often now, and there is research about it increasing as a behavior, but also it looks like it's so built in, in, in human history, and it's part of how human beings have over millennia coped. And it's, we were talking before recording, weren't yeah. we, about some cultures where they practice scratching or they practice self-flagellation or... And it's very interesting that that has different different ways to being built into cultures almost as a way of venue for people to try and unload negative feelings in a way that's culturally acceptable. And we can talk for hours, can't we, about the, the, cultural, um, the cultural aspects around self-harm and how it's not acceptable, but it's also acceptable in some cultures and in some forms. So 
we know that some people try to manage self-harming on the long run by finding more socially acceptable ways of doing it. And I was telling you about my experience with someone who's amazing and who started coping with self-harm by, you know, every time she'd get the urge, she'd um, do her eyebrows and pluck them and, and make them look neat. And um, some people cope with it with tattooing, just engaging with a lot of body art. So if self-harm is so helpful, why is it bad? Why are we telling people it's a bad thing? With, with that, I think we need to say that not everyone who has tattoos or piercing um, uh, engage in self-harm. No. <laughs> for some people, that may be a safer alternative. When we do talk about safer alternatives. Yes. Because self-harm, we know, can be very risky. So it can lead to death, but also it's severe. Severe disability and yeah. severe repercussions as well for your future. So I think when we talk about self-harm being bad as such, I think we need to, first of all, get to understand the reasons why that person is self-harming. What is going on for them? It is different for everyone. And I think that's when, so when, when you might come in and see me or me or Tagrid, we'll ask a lot of questions and there will be We do, questions. we do. Um, but that's just so we can understand what this behaviour is doing for you. How is it helping you? So, of course, we say self-harm is bad because, like I just said, um, it can lead to serious repercussions. It's not common, but it is something that does happen. Yeah. It can lead to severe infection if, if your form of self-harm is perhaps cutting. Yeah. It can lead to significant scarring. Yeah. Um, it can lead to potentially um, more serious aspects depending on where you cut. For example, yeah. if, if you cut through uh, any very important nerves or, yeah. or vessels, blood vessels as well. So I think that's very important. And again, with overdose as well. In my, in my mind, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking back to people I've met who've uh, accidentally gotten seriously hurt on accident. And I think it's not just cutting that we that we see we see self-harming in with substance use and with alcohol with putting oneself and i think intent is important here like you said sometimes you see a full disregard of to one's safety placing yourself in in harm's way in in a, in a very severe way and and in the middle of being unwell it's hard to see a world where you are important again but when you become well, that sense of protecting yourself and wanting to be okay and, and being protective of your skin and of your body and of your well-being, that returns, doesn't it? And we walk this journey with so many young people every day that sometimes when you see someone so unwell, you just want to tell them, you know what, I wish we can fast forward a few months and you can see yourself in that space where you care about you again. And sometimes we have to hold that faith for people, don't we? Because we see them and their families in such despair. Absolutely. And and that's why in in our job, for example, it's it's not just the young person that's our patient, even though that is our primary patient. We work uh, along with the carers as well for those young people. They're all very important in one's recovery. Let's talk about the impact on, on families and carers. So I've seen people come in and they, they can feel very guilty um, yeah. 
Perhaps they haven't spotted the signs earlier. Perhaps they blame themselves and, it, and it's nothing to blame themselves for. They may not know how to help them. You may feel quite hopeless in that mm-hmm. respect. It can have a big impact on the families, for everyone in the household or whoever, anyone who, who is close to them and, and cares for them. People can worry about them and not know how to approach them or not know what, how to say as well. And that I often see people coming in with such with such bravery, but I, 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 there's a worry about being judged as a parent, as a carer, as a family. And sometimes I see families coming in and they're just so apologetic, like as though they're afraid that their person who's looking after them, you know, is bothered by this behavior or would judge them, think of them less. And, and it's very painful to see the impact as well on family systems having siblings or having other members of the family, loved ones, partners, the impact of the worry, the guilt, not the actual behavior, but the impact of the worry, the guilt is is so difficult that I think we acknowledge it a lot in our work, don't we? I think sometimes, I, I, well, I've seen siblings being protected almost. But because they're protected, they don't know everything that's going on. They may worry more. That may lead to them engaging in potentially risky behaviours. They may struggle how to articulate their own problems because they feel then they have to protect their parents. Um, So they feel they may not be able to approach them if they're struggling with something, for example. It's not, obviously this conversation is not a one size fits all. Everyone is different. These are just some examples. Yeah. And I think the other thing that is important, I think, to bring up is secrecy. Secrecy and shame go hand in hand. And, and I think we've, we've had this conversation with young people so many times about, you know, I, I see a lot of young people coming in, not wanting to tell their parents, not wanting to tell their family about what's going on. Just because sometimes, I mean, it's different. Sometimes people just want their privacy and they don't want people knowing, people around them knowing about what's going on. But also sometimes it's out of protectiveness and worrying about the impact of this on their uh, grown up, mm-hmm. on, on their family, on their siblings. And then we have to do a piece of work with the family then, with the parents around what's going on for them. I think that can often be very difficult, balancing the confidentiality of this young person mm-hmm. whilst keeping them safe and making sure that their family can keep them safe in the home as well. Um, and I think we're going to discuss that in our next episode, yeah. aren't we? Yeah, we're going to talk about how to manage things and how we manage things. But I think to wrap things up, In summary, what we do in our capacity as psychiatrists is when we see a family presenting with self-harm, what do we do? We start assessing at first what is going on, kind of inventory, what is going on for the young person separately, for the family separately. And then we try to inventory the intent. What is behind it? Why is this happened? Why is this happening? And how does it help? And what is bad about it? What is what is what is the negative impact has that it had on the young person? And then what was the impact on the family? And 
how did we get here? I think trying to, to think back about how did we get here? How did we get to the point where things had gotten so desperate that you'd engaged in this behavior? How did this happen? It's also our job as well to work with the young person to try and think of in the short term, maybe alternatives, safer ways of coping with that distress. Mm. And also, um, be able to understand where this pain has come from. It's not yeah. always pain, but pain. Where has it come from? And try and work with that. And it's what we mentioned earlier about why is it bad? It's not, we know it's not a good coping mechanism. Yeah. It's very short term. When we, when we hear people speak about the relief they feel from it, it, it doesn't last a long time. So that relief goes, so they do it again. Yeah. So it's about understanding the causes for it and working with those causes um, in order to help make them feel better. And in the show notes, I'm going to put in a very lovely piece of uh, an article on the Mental Health Foundation website that talks about that cycle that we call it as a self-harm cycle, where you, sell, you feel a lot of distress, so you self-harm, so you feel shame about it, guilt about it, so you feel more distress, you self-harm again. And sometimes this cycle doesn't just happen internally, it happens also externally. So you see the impact of your distress on people that you love and you become more distressed. So it's a cycle. It's a very painful cycle. This is also one part. Sometimes we we focus on the biological aspect, don't we? Sometimes we look at what biological function this serves for a person. So sometimes it's as simple as doing a sensory assessment for people who have who are on the spectrum who have an autism spectrum disorder which we're going to talk about in a different episode but um sometimes we look at that bit don't we but i think the first thing that we do is education is talking about this with people families schools and this is so poignant because we're september we're coming up with school <laughs> this is this is a spike that we see don't we we see yeah. Massive spike. And I think it's it's important to say that we have to work a lot with schools and colleges in order to keep people safe, um, in order that they can be surrounded by people that understand them. So in time, they, the young people will know that people do care. Here in the UK, we've got social care that sometimes provides supportive packages to families. And that's that's part of what we do. But also there's a lot of third organizations that support families siblings kind of day-to-day -day life the financial aspects and we're going to talk about the care of self-harm their financial impact on parents jobs and on parents time as well to come into appointments and all of that stuff and it's important to then think with families and i'm trying to think about what families need to to prepare in their minds when they're coming in for an assessment for self-harm. And what I tell people is nothing. Just bring yourself, just bring yourself. And all you need to do is just try and posture confidence. And I'm borrowing this word from a colleague of mine, but posturing confidence is a very good way to describe it because we talk about this so smoothly as if it's easy, but as a parent in that moment, no matter how much training you've had, you know, I don't care if you're like a firefighter by training, you're trained to respond to emergencies, but in that moment, it's, it's your loved one. And I think we need to acknowledge that it's very, very difficult. Yeah. 
to be fully objective when it comes to someone you're really close to. We, we can't be. And that's yeah. one of the reasons as well why, why doctors don't treat the family and friends. Yeah. We can't be objective. Yeah. So, and we, we understand that. You're, you're, see, you're coming as a carer and seeing your young person in distress. Yeah. And you want to help them. And as a young person, all we ask you to do is just bring yourself again. And if you, if you don't like your, your professional, if you don't like the person that you're going to talk to, just ask to change them, you know, and, and I've said that to people before in clinic, you know what, you don't have to, you don't have to work with me. Oh, we've got like tons of people outside, just choose one. And we don't take it personally, do we? I mean, sometimes we offer people, do you want to talk to a male, female, you know, non-binary? What do you want to, what would be comfortable? And if it takes a few sessions as well to, for you to get to know people, that's absolutely fine. Yeah. And a lot of what we do is sit with people in the moment, isn't it? Sometimes it's not talking at all. It's just sitting with them in that experience and providing togetherness, providing company in a moment that feels very, very lonely, I think. and. So this feels like we've covered a few topics that are really sensitive and I hope that we covered them in a way that was kind and today we talked about self-harm. We talked about what it is, why it's good and why it's bad and we talked about the impact of self-harm on families and young people and thank you very much for listening. Thank you for joining me today. Remember to check the show notes for helpful resources and support. If you enjoyed listening, subscribe to our channel and get notified about the latest episodes. This is Dr. Tagrid, wishing you well.